to that end, let's jump right into the subject. You know, what is uh, Christian nationalism and how did it evolve into what there are articles now on the Internet proclaiming it as Christian Trumpism? Lyndon, please introduce our guest. Please introduce how you got into the subject, what its relevance is to today's conversation. Well, I was put on to Nap from his his unwillingness to write a pro-Trump editorial. And it went viral on Twitter. I think I saw the Washington Post thing first. I may have just seen somebody respond to it on Twitter first. And um, not too far after that time, I was also made aware of a book called Myth of a Christian Nation, which kind of talks about Christian nationalism and is at least adjacent to kind of what happened to Knapp, even though it was written in 2004. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I learned about him. I mean, I didn't know him from Adam before that, but, you know, when you see somebody, you know, especially, it basically get canceled in his own circle uh, because he won't, you know, bow down to the emperor. I mean, I don't know. It definitely catches your eye, especially when, at least me growing up in a Southern Baptist church, you're very much taught to, um, you know, not cancel people. You know, it's like we're a free country. You can say whatever you want. Like, and I don't know, it's very antithetical to, you know, whatever 90s theology I was at least preached. I don't know if it was really true. I was a kid, but um, I, I didn't think these things happened. And so I don't know. I found it very interesting when it did. And so, yeah, I just kind of wanted to have him on the show because, I mean, even before the Capitol attack, obviously, it's just been a very interesting now six years of Christian nationalism. And I can't imagine now that you would have seen yourself getting kicked off of that website five years before when Trump announced his candidacy. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it was it was just uh, such a, a, a shocking turn, both from the time that Trump got elected to the time that uh, I felt like I just had to leave my position. I could no longer work there. I mean, during the Obama years, I mean, there was never any disagreement on politics, you know? Um, So we we always had like a good uh, working relationship, but uh, the Trump presidency really changed everything in, in that regard. No, that's certainly true. The Trump presidency has polarized America like it's never been polarized before. I can't think back to a place in my living memory when politics have been this polarized. And you have to go back to American history, to the separation between the free states and the slave states and what they were going to do about Kansas and the Kansas Compromise, which was a terrible compromise, which ended up leading to the Civil War. And then the much disputed presidential election that led to Jim Crow eight years after the end of the Civil War. These are very polarized dynamics, and it doesn't help that we're in the midst of a second or third surge, no matter how you look at it, here in Los Angeles, which is now the epicenter of COVID infections throughout the world. California has now topped uh, 3 million infections, which is just about 10% of the state's population of 34 million. What's the Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times. We certainly are in the midst of it right now. Right. And and sometimes it gets difficult to put labels on on these things because Trump has sort of mobilized such a disparate, so many disparate groups all sort of mobilized together 
to uh, behind Trump. But the the Christian nationalism, it's it's something that I have been exposed to, been aware of, really, since I was just a young Christian in college in the early 90s. But the, we didn't have a label for it back then. It's only uh, been recently that we've started to uh, refer to it as Christian nationalism. I think a lot of credit goes to uh, the, the sociologists Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, who wrote the book, uh, Taking America Back for God, and was doing a lot of research on Christian nationalism that they were publishing before that. Um, and so, but, you know, like I said, when I was in college, early 90s, late late 80s, early 90s, just uh, a young Christian myself, and I was exposed to a lot of these ideas that, you know, God blessed America for a special purpose, and uh, the U.S. is a Christian nation, and uh, and God is going to use the United States to fulfill his purposes. And it's it's all very appealing, you know. If you're a Christian, to to believe that it's uh, uh, it's it's something that you know makes you feel good about your faith, good about yourself. So I uh, I found it appealing at the time. So it's just one of those it's these ideas that have been around a very long time, uh, and they've been taught by lots of Christian leaders, especially in the white evangelical world, uh, for a very long time. It's it's a big part of. For instance, uh, homeschool curriculum, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, evangelical homeschoolers teach their kids this and, and, and Christian schools and, and so forth. And um, so it, it's, it's only been recently that scholars have really started to take a close look at it and to try to understand its influence on our faith and influence on society. And then we've, and now, Unfortunately, we've seen some really sort of extreme versions of that we saw two weeks ago in, in D.C. Indeed, and the the event at the U.S. Capitol may have been, you know, the uh, the event right over the event horizon. You know, we, we've been proceeding on a path towards an event horizon, and the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol um, and the storming of both the House of Representatives and the Senate um, really brought it to light, and there's a there's a phrase that's a very popular phrase that the barbarians are at the gate, and harkening back to you know 476 when the barbarians are in the gate, the barbarians are in Rome, and that was the last time Rome was sacked, and then you know the Western Empire collapsed, and figuratively, a lot of individuals have bemused the phrase, well, enjoy the decline, because this is the first act where you could actually stamp it on a timeline when, you know, the United States as a republic began the decline. And maybe, and this is a very horrible thought, so I will repeat, this is a very horrible thought that Christian nationalism and Christian Trumpism may be viewed by members and adherents to the philosophy as the only means to restore the republic. And that's really frightening because it, it's it's like, oh no, I have the answer. This is the answer. And, you know, everyone needs a sense of belonging to a group, to a group greater than themselves. And this can quite be that movement that establishes itself as an alternative to the culture, you know, there's no more subculture because of the internet. Every, 
every subculture has a place in a discussion group except for the participants of the capital insurrection because now they've been banned they've been you know completely deplatformed so now you're taking an entire movement that's going to go underground and that is my personal belief is more dangerous than the exposure of sunshine and having everything out in the open what do you guys think well i i I don't know on your point but something that's tied to that is and this is obviously we don't know this isn't a longitudinal study this happened two weeks ago but i know i'd seen a survey that uh election disinformation fell by 73 percent once trump was taken off of twitter now the parlor thing is obviously a secondary discussion and maybe you're right the whole community if you deplatform platform it just comes back in a worse form or something like that but i think i do think having someone out there especially with the authority of the presidential office with a bullhorn saying it's all a lie makes things worse. Um, now, deplatforming community, you, there's definitely, it's hard though, George, because you see some of the language. And I do think whether you are a big fan of big tech or not, which I mean, obviously I'm not a fan of how much power they have. I don't think they're bad people. Um, I think they have too much power, but at the same time, you see the language that wasn't being moderated on Parler and at least you can see the argument for saying, like, hey, they're going to have the next 9-11, and it's going to be in a discussion board on Parler, and people are going to sue Amazon for hosting the web services for that, or they're going to sue Google for allowing people to download an app where people plan terrorist attacks. And so I think, you know, I'm, I, I know it, it sounds inflammatory, but, I mean, you know, the capital attack was essentially live-streamed on Parler. And so it's not a stretch to think something a lot more horrifying could be planned or had and happen on a platform that is paid for or at least does business with these big tech companies. So I I think it's a a quandary for them, but I don't think it's really a debate for Donald Trump to to lose his Twitter because, I mean, it it seems like it's helped take the temperature down to not have at least him to have to go through somebody else to talk. Yeah. And can I just back up and emphasize something about Christian nationalism it, it's not like an on-off switch, like you. It's either there or it's not there. It's 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 better to think of it like a scale, uh, where there's some more uh, extreme versions and then some more moderate versions. So some of the moderate versions, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between um, that and and just sort of a, a civil religion. Um, although there, I mean, there is a difference, but it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Um, so we, we are talking about some really extreme uh, stuff here. And I, I was just reading the New Yorker's article before we logged on about uh, that someone wrote that was there and was describing the events. And what really struck me is all the references to the founding fathers. And they were shouting 1776, you know, as they stormed the Capitol, which seems like really ironic to a lot of us who are like, Wait a second! You're going to overthrow the government that was established <laughs> after 1776, but th- but to them, they see themselves as modern day revolutionaries, and they're and they're carrying on the, the tradition of the founding fathers, and they're going to take up arms uh, just like the founding fathers did, and you know to overthrow the government. So, uh, 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 I mean, I really recommend that New Yorker article to really get a sense of like all the crazy groups that were part of this and, and how 
you know, the Christian nationalism aspects really were a big part of it. Well, I think, too, what, to what you're saying, too, Nap, is there's certainly what I would jokingly call it the horseshoe theory sometimes on Twitter, the far left and the far right, the accelerationists. And I think part of what that capital, capital insurrection, whatever you want to call it, collected was the right side of accelerationists, people who want to make things worse to hopefully make things better later. That's their, their idea, their hope. And, um, you know, you definitely see, I don't see as much violence outside of the Portland stuff out of Antifa. That seems more of a, a police, like a fight against the police versus an overthrow of the Portland government. It's a different goal. Um, obviously it's still anti-authority. It's just anti-authority from a different angle. But regardless, when you hear Antifa talk, and I, I do think they're a little bit overamplified by Fox News, how big they are, how menacing they are. But nonetheless, when you see them speak, it's that same accelerationist language of essentially let's bring apart the end of our world and hopes that the world that comes after will be our vision and a utopia. Kind of similar, actually, because I read his biography in the last couple of years, Vladimir Lenin. He essentially said we have to tear down the empire and then we'll have this communist paradise after. And it, it's dangerous language. It, it's very dangerous. And it's, you know, it's not just, I don't want to put this at the, the pulpit of Southern Baptist churches. This way extends that. It's not just them. And it's not all of their churches for that part. But they are, there are parts of the church that are dabbling in this accelerationist theology. I even see it on my social media where, you know, somebody said, I'm no longer looking for the signs. I'm waiting for the trumpet. You know, and there's this almost excitement for the rapture and the end of the world. And it, it's it's scary. I mean, for those of us that don't want it, um, <laughs> it, it feels like we're getting dragged into a worse world on utopian hopes that aren't going to be realized. It's also the plot line for Watchmen, that comic book where Ozymandias wants to bring about the end of the world so that the world governments would come together to fight this menace. And in fighting this menace, they uh, put aside their petty differences and the world becomes more peaceful. It's, uh, it's the, the trope of the villain, that the villain is the hero of his own story uh, because he sees so much moral inequity. And there, by no means, you know, uh, is, was there anything heroic about what happened last week? It was more incompetence now that the news and the information is coming out that the capital police the capital police had the offer of having the national guard present you know before the demonstrations got to the capital steps and that they could have bolstered their lines with reinforcements and you know taking a plot line from game of thrones they could have barred the door you know hold the door you know very easy. And as a person that used to work in that building, I am just amazed by how easily people got in almost to the point where live on video, you just saw people walking through the rotunda of the Capitol surrounded by all the large marble statues. And when, and then when they got in there, they didn't know what to do because the reality was they didn't think they were going to get that far. There was, there was no planning past, you know, storming, storming the gates. I think there was some militia that had a plan, but I, I think 90% of the people were you, what you said, George. But it does seem like, based on Mitch McConnell's reaction, because he has access to 
you know, stuff that we don't know yet about the Capitol attacks and based on some of the videos where you see armed militia storming in, I think there was, I don't know if it's 10%, but there is a group in there that did have a plan. I mean, there's this obviously zip tie guy that everybody's talked about. There's people that have planned to either execute or arrest congressional officials. But I think, like you said, there was 90% there for a quote-unquote good time. Um, I mean, obviously, it's pretty horrifying what happened. But, yeah, there was a lot of people along for the ride. But I do think there were insidious elements within that group. I don't think it was all, you know, a bunch of people who never thought they were going to get that far. So where we are right now, it's uh, Tuesday afternoon. And sooner than later, tomorrow, President-elect Joe Biden becomes the president of the United States. And I have to ask the question because it's what everyone has uh, at the top of their mind if they're following politics. What do you believe will happen? I mean, as far as the potential for violence tomorrow? Yeah, that could be one of the things. You know, you could have what is um, in effect that you have a hardened target which makes other targets in the city or in the surrounding area, you know, unguarded. Or yeah. you could have, I remember during the summer, the CNN building in Atlanta, Georgia was attacked. And the police officers had to stand in the lobby to protect that building. Well, there's also a CNN building here in Los Angeles. And there's also one in New York. You know, And if they can't go after the Capitol, they could just go after the news source or the news organization they view as the enemy. And this is, this is how bifurcated we are that you we we now view people not just as having different political ideologies but actually being political enemies but mortal political enemies and that and, and go ahead and in addition to that uh one of the liberal christian denominations i think it was united church of christ but you'd have to double check me on that sent out an email to all their congregations warning of the potential for violence tomorrow and of the potential for an attack on their churches tomorrow and and warned all the pastors to to uh you know basically be aware of that and 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 to protect themselves uh so a lot of people are out warning uh what could happen i remember in september i was writing things you know warning uh, not because i know anything in particular but because i was listening to the experts who who were warning about the potential for violence and then and then you know january 6 happened so uh, yeah, we, we need to take these warnings seriously when the law enforcement and other experts uh, tell us, you know, that the, the potential exists and and to try to uh, prevent it from happening as best we can. But definitely, I'm I am very much worried about what could happen tomorrow. And more long term, I think or I hope that we take these far right groups more seriously. Uh, in the Bush administration, there was a report suppressed, and then it was also suppressed in the Obama administration because Obama didn't want to seem political, and I guess Bush didn't want to inflame the base, that the FBI basically said, look, we're looking at all the data. We're really concerned about fringe right groups and you know, uh, domestic terror, whatever you want to call it, when it comes from within the own country. Um, and I, you would hope after one six we can say that without it seeming too political because it's actually just happened. But I, I really would hope in a, a Biden administration 
that at least the the sane wing of the Republican Party would choose other things to criticize so that we can accurately start to track these groups and start to understand how to take the temperature down because they're only going to be they're only going to grow from the rhetoric that's out there in the media right now the media it, it basically gets ratings off of heat and really just just a, it's just capitalism the incentives right now are to generate heat you get views from inflammatory language you get views and clicks and ratings with bombastic you know verbose language that that's how you get you know that's how you drive excitement that's why you get people to click your headline on facebook or you know change the channel to you if you're still watching cable tv like it until we change those incentives we're probably always going to struggle with this to some degree, but at the very least, we have to start tracking these groups that actually fall through on attacks. Yeah, and if that report you're talking about is the same one I'm thinking of, uh, even to this day, it is heavily redacted, meaning that there are people in the government who know a lot more about the potential for violence from uh, right-wing extremist groups than they are sharing with the public. Well, uh, this has been true since the Timothy McVeigh Oklahoma City bombing and the investigation that that occurred afterwards. And had it not been for 9-11 and the, and the external enemy, I mean, we would have had this confrontation much earlier in our history because the Timothy McVeigh and the organizations that produced a person like Timothy McVeigh and the bombing in Oklahoma City have never gone away. They've just been suppressed over a very long time. And then we had the, the events of 9-11 and the war on terror that gave us an external enemy. And it was that external enemy that pushed this off the table, you know, as we were fighting al-Qaeda and the invasion of Iraq and the occupation of Afghanistan, etc., but now that those conflicts are ending, there are now more federal troops in the U.S. Capitol, 20,000, than there are combined in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And there are veterans of Iraq that have outwardly said that the U.S. Capitol resembles the green zone in Baghdad with the amount of security around the building and the, the federal capital of Washington, D.C. as well. And if this persists for another month, I guarantee you those small businesses are not going to survive because those small businesses absolutely depend on tourism and the office workers from the Capitol buildings and all of the other, you know, nonprofits and lobbyists on, uh, on H Street, you know, going out and shopping there. I mean, it's uh, the city... The city may fall on its own accord because of the security. Yeah, I think it's also important to here to talk about the overlap between uh, or the importance of understanding race with regard to Christian nationalism and how it overlaps with uh, white supremacist groups. Because, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the people, the Christian nationalist type stuff, you wouldn't get from reading it, the sort of race aspect, but there's a, there's a reason that black Protestants don't buy into the argument that America is a blessed nation, right? Uh, their, their ancestors were slaves and, and were prevented from being able to vote and were hung, uh, 
and 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 so forth. So the whole this whole notion that you know God bless America doesn't make sense if you you know if you're a person of color, and and so the Christian nationalism stuff and the white supremacist stuff uh, has a tendency to overlap in different ways. Uh, you know that that uh, you know maybe doesn't make sense on the surface, but when you think about it, it, it kind of starts to make sense. You know this notion that not only did God bless the nation, but God wants to keep the nation white. Uh, and and we need to keep out the immigrants and all these sorts of things also become sort of um, sometimes outside the movement, uh, not central to the movement, but these days with Trump has, has become more central to the movement. Well, and I think, too, just like how movements evolve and language evolves, even Pompeo's statement, it was, I don't think it was either today or yesterday, and they use multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is just like, a new way to sound racist without being like sounding racist. Like it's like how thug replaced the N word for sports broadcasters in the nineties and two thousands. Like uh, multiculturalism is just a new, you know, uh, bullhorn that you can hide behind and say, I'm not racist. I'm just saying there's too much going on here. So I, I you know, it's, it, it, I do think back to like, like you Dapa, you know, I've, I was a little younger, but I grew up in the 90s church where little digs towards liberals and, you know, people from New York and L.A. I live in L.A. now, ironically, but I grew up in North Carolina in a small town. And I just wonder now if we knew what those little digs and that language has brought us, if they would if those pastors would still do that, because I think it's like it's a good layup to unite the congregation because everybody can hate on the gays because they assume there's no gays in their church. They can hate on, you know, big cities because nobody in their church obviously lives in a big city or they can hope or assume that there's not many liberals so they can say liberals and they know they're not there. And it's looking back, it's like those things weren't that big of a deal. But if you don't check yourself in being partisan at the pulpit, you help lead to what we have now. It's, you know, it's a wall that takes one brick at a time. And those foundational bricks that didn't seem like big deals at the time, now I look back and I'm like, man, I remember when I went to my childhood church after living in, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, L.A., <laughs> for a few years. And I went back to my childhood church on uh, their, for their 9-11 service. And I just was shocked at how, and maybe it was from being gone for a few years, how politically partisan their Christian nationalist 9-11 you know, service was. It, it really, this was like 2012, maybe 2013. I, I had not been prepared for how much the language had changed while it was gone, or maybe the scales fell from my eyes, or both. It, it's sometimes when you take yourself out of a situation and you come back, it's really shocking. And, and what really offended me by that Pompeo t- multiculturalism tweet, in that same tweet, he used the phrase, our enemies to refer to his political opponents. So here, here's the, our Secretary of State, who just, you know, before there's a transition of, of power um, and, and all these warnings about the potential for violence, and he's tweeting about our enemies? I mean, that's just so incredibly irresponsible. Wow, it's trending on Twitter. Uh, Pompeo multiculturalism. Hmm. Okay. Not surprised. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here we go. Let's read the tweet. Secretary, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's tweet that multiculturalism is not who America is sent on his last full day as the 
at the State Department infuriated American diplomats who described it as the final insult by the Trump administration. All right, so here's Pompeo's tweet. Wokeism, multiculturalism, all the isms, they're not who America is. They distort our glorious founding and what this country is all about. Our enemies stoke these divisions. No, there it is. Oh, I mean, that because they know they make us weaker. There, 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 there it is. There's, there's the a tweet in, um, in four simple lines. Um, there's your Christian nationalism right there. It's a rejection of Nap. Could you repeat that tweet? Uh, wokeism, multiculturalisms, all the isms. They're not who America is. They distort our glorious founding and what this country is all about. Our enemies stoke these divisions because they know they make us weaker. Yeah, so what we may be seeing here, seeing here from Pompeo is sort of a first step into trying to be the leader of the Trump coalition looking forward to 2024. I don't know. It's just a guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, cer certainly seems like he's hoping he gets impeached and expelled so that he can't run again and he can try to grab that that group by the horns, because I think the, the field will be cleared by Trump aligned Republicans if Trump can run again at 24. So you're, I think you're right now. He's essentially hoping he can rail against the Republican senators who vote against Trump, but then also court all of those voters because Trump's out of the field. Yeah. And, but and, I mean, it's, it's, it, sorry. It, it's scary because if we, if I put myself in early 2000s version of ourselves and we saw a Middle Eastern country that would that was a little bit more multicultural using language like this and saying, you know, hey, we're too diverse. We need to get more Islamic. We would, you know, be throwing up the flags and, and thinking about how to add, add them to the axis of evil. And so, I mean, we're essentially a mirror image of what we say we we hate <laughs> or we oppose. It, it's very scary. Because, I mean, you know, the horse is out of the barn for America being a diverse country. Uh, you know, I, like, you know, go to Japan or something if you want to be somewhere that almost everybody's, you know, the same race. And obviously there's diversity there, but way less than here. I mean, it's the idea that you're going to make America homogeneously white means you're going to kill a ton of people, frankly. And, and he should just be honest about that. Um, obviously can't, he won't be voted on. People don't want to admit that that's their violent dreams, but you, you can't get rid of, you know, a hundred, what, probably 130 million people. Maybe I, I don't know how many non-white America. It's pretty high at this point. Um, they're not all going to leave on a boat or a ship or, uh, sorry, on a plane. And so you're talking about killing a lot of people if you want one white dominant culture. And that's pretty scary. Yeah. And yeah, he's, uh, it's a rejection of pluralism and he's, he's basically, it it's just seems so odd to me when I see people like Pompeo, uh, Ted Cruz, um, you know, they, they look at what happened at the Capitol and, and think, yeah, let me be the leader of that group. I mean, <laughs> I want to double down. Like yeah. you know, they saw that they wanted more. It's, it's scary. Um, I mean, George, you know, both, I, I don't know about you, Nap, and I don't know if you're open about it, but I mean, I know George was, you know, kind of a card-carried Republican until Trump. Uh, could you have, when you saw this language pre-Trump, did you ever think it could bud this way, or did you kind of always hope 
it was just a way to drive voters to the polls, but it wouldn't actually turn on you. Like, is this something where you saw it as a faction you could placate, but you would never act? No, actually this act- is this is this is what happens when there's no uh, leadership and there's no moral fiber to challenge Trump inside the party. When they completely placated to him because he was he was their guy, he was letting them you know fill the federal courts. He was letting them you know keep the Keystone pile, uh, pipeline. He was letting them you know. Uh, destroy the Iran uh, nuclear deal. You know, as long as he was on their side, you know, they gave him a pass. But in giving him a pass, he turned into a Frankenstein monster. You know, who's the bigger monster? The, the, the creation or the creator? And you can't rein him in now. I mean, he's, he's so, he's larger than life that um, I, for one, believe that the impeachment trial in the Senate will not happen because it's kind of like a dagger they're holding over his head that, you know, oftentimes in a duel back in the 18th century, if you missed and the other person still had his round chambered, he would say, your life is forfeit. It's mine. And I can take my shot whenever I please. And that's where, you know, the House Democrats are right now. You know, they're round is still chambered and they can take the shot whenever they want as a dagger over Trump's head so as to keep him quiet until you know the uh, the inauguration but the the cat's out of the bag um, because it's filled a void and the void is a complete lack of you know conservative thought you know a very well constructed conservative worldview outside of Trump it doesn't exist you know, the Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. It's Trump. And I will say that outright. And if you disagree with me, you can fight me because it's the absolute truth. Yeah, I remember back in 2016 when I was warning against voting for Trump. And the argument I heard was, yeah, he's bad. But, you know, he once he gets in there, you know, we'll have access and we can influence and we'll hold his feet to the fire. And we'll, we'll make sure he doesn't do anything bad. And all these sorts of arguments like that, that they were going to call balls and strikes, you know, was, that was one of the phrase I heard. And, uh, and then, and then he gets elected and all of a sudden they become cowards. You know, they, they, they back, they didn't do anything to, uh, to, to restrain him. Um, I mean, when they had the opportunity, uh, you know, in the in the Senate, they wouldn't even allow witnesses in the trial. You know, much less you know vote uh, vote to remove him from office. Um, so it, you know th- that that just turned out to be such a, a bogus argument. And and I, I recently to answer your other question, I was I recently went back and looked at my the op-ed I wrote uh, urging evangelicals to not vote for Trump, and and I did warn with some very strong language. I said with with the bully pulpit. Uh, Donald Trump will destroy this country. That's 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 the language I use. So uh, I, I was very worried, for, you know, from the outset of what would happen if, if Trump became president. It's uh, it's interesting. In some ways, it wasn't as bad as I imagined four years ago, and in some ways, it was worse. Um, we didn't get any stupid foreign wars. You know, knock on wood, with 24 hours to go, it, it seems like. <laughs> Um, you know, we're not going to nuke anybody or do anything too drastic in that direction. But at the same time, in terms of how much, how divided we are internally, 
I thought I knew how bad it would be, but maybe it's just worse once you live through the four years. Uh, and I mean, I remember the muzzle ban. And I mean, thank God Joe Biden's going to, you know, lift that his first day in office. But that was so traumatic to us. But after everything that happened after that, now it's a footnote. And, and it really tells you how he moved the goalposts on ethnic violence or ethnic hatred, however you want to say it. I mean, the kids in cages moment should have been, I mean, Charlottesville, there were so many moments that, like you said, that the balls and strikes, where, where were they? Because I, I have another pastor I follow on Twitter, and I was like, hey, where were they when they put kids in cages? And he was like, oh, the SBC uh, Southern Baptist Convention put out a statement opposing that. Not. I didn't know how to feel because I don't know if I should blame the media for not amplifying that more or if I don't should blame the pastors for not aggressively pushing back on Trump in a way that got public attention. Because clearly I thought they signed off on her or at least didn't care. And at least apparently they in theory opposed it, but it never got airwaves. So I just assumed they were complicit in that as well. Yeah, and then he, he had his faith advisory board that uh, I, I, you know, I, I know some of the people who were on that board, and, and I know some of them op- opposed it, but they never publicly, you know, they wouldn't publicly speak out against him because that would mean losing their seat on the faith advisory board, you know, and, um, and yeah, there were so many opportunities, and it really, I mean, looking back, I think probably the, I mean, the only people, the only Republicans who really uh, restrained him were basically. Uh, some some judges, some Republican appointed judges, uh, Mitt Romney, and um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's John it. McCain <laughs> when he was still alive. I mean. Yeah, <laughs> that's a. I mean, there's a lot more to talk about. Uh, Nap, you're welcome to come back to the podcast, uh, especially after the inauguration, where we can have a recap uh, <laughs> of um, something that will be. The political violence version of Sports Center, I imagine. You know what God, burning burned down? Wrong. What burning? What building burned down in your neighborhood? You know what happened in your neighborhood? Um, we used to have a tradition of what made you happy this week, but I'm going to stop that in 2021 because we're in the middle of a pandemic and the republic is in decline. So I'll just ask each of you: um, What do you hope? will happen tomorrow uh, on the inauguration day. My, I mean, my prayer is just for no violence uh, or that the police would stop it before it happens. You know, uh, that's, that's the main thing I'm concerned about right now. Yeah, I would say nothing. <laughs> I hope nothing happens. I hope the inauguration happens. And, you know, it, it's, you know, it's inauguration. They, that gets the news and there's no violence around it. And, you know, we get through tomorrow, you know, unscathed. Um, I think that's the most you can hope for at this point. And, and sorry, I'm going to derail for a second. Do you guys think Biden should have kept his inauguration public? Because I do. I, I think it's a sign of weakness not to. But I've definitely seen people call for him not to be doing what he's doing. Uh, I think, you know, with the pandemic and the threats of violence, it, it makes sense to have a more low-key event than usual. So... That's that's all I'd say. It's you know as far as how they go about it. Um, I think it should have been done at night rather than the middle of the day. Uh, you could have a public event. Um, 
it's it's just gonna it's gonna get bad either way it's gonna it's gonna be bad because something's gonna happen everyone there's a lot of energy surrounding the event and who knows it may not happen in washington dc you know yeah state capitals are a big concern or it may happen in atlanta georgia you know it may happen at the cnn building in atlanta or the cnn building in uh, los angeles you know we'll see you know i just hope Everybody stays home and, like, two weeks ago just watches this thing unfold uh, on television because they don't need you. They don't need you out there. You know, just stay home. That's the best thing we can do. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We will continue the discussion uh, later on in the year. And, uh, yeah, God bless America. You know, let's hope we can make it through. All right. Thanks for having me.